I'm Al from New Zealand. Obviously a square because it is I who always has to discover every fiddling little misdemeanor in this podcast. And I'm Steve from Maryland who is definitely a hip cat, even if I haven't been cleaned or examined in weeks. Our introduction was Jingle Hell by a very merry Christopher Lee. And we are Hammerama, the podcast who is making another attempt to bring some seasonal spirit to the world of Hammer. In this festive month, we are covering Hammer's first Christmas movie, The Dickensian Bank Heist from 1961, starring Peter Cushing and Andre Morel. Cash on demand. This is the Habersham branch of the City and Colonial Bank, in a quiet provincial town where nothing ever happens. But about 10 o'clock on the morning of December the 23rd, as these doors are opened for business, the most startling, terrifying two hours of this man's life will commence. I walk into this bank this morning, hand a card over the counter, and immediately I'm shown in here and left alone with Fordyce. I could have stuck a gun in his ribs as soon as the door closed. If I may say so, sir, you don't look much like a gunman. What does a gunman look like? Like this? Don't do anything for us. They'll die if you move or say a word. What is it you want? Just some money. get away with it. Unfortunate for your family if I don't. Starring Peter Cushing as the bank manager, the martinet who lives for his work (laughs) and almost dies for it. Andre Morel as Hepburn. His was the moment a thousand thieves had dreamt of. We've been a year setting up this operation. There isn't the smallest detail of your branch which is not known to me. Try to remember I've only to make one of several prearranged gestures at that window. And your wife would be subjected to the most unbearable torture. Up to now, you've made all the threats. I'll make only one. If anything happens to my family, I'll kill you. Officious bank manager Harry Fordyce, played to precision by Peter Cushing, runs the Havisham branch of the City and Colonial Bank with Ebenezer Scrooge-like mean-spiritedness, belittling his staff, bullying his assistant, and banning Christmas cards. But his grand moth-like control over his little empire and his entire life is rapidly subverted by the unexpected appearance of the smoothly ruthless Colonel Gore Hepburn, exquisitely portrayed by Andre Morel. Purporting to be the bank's insurance assessor, he is in reality someone far more dangerous and seems to have thought of everything in his plan to empty the bank vault. It becomes a very scary Christmas for Fordyce as his tightly ordered existence spins completely out of control. But can he yet find redemption by finally learning not to be such a massive banker? Little pun there for our British and Antipodean listeners. Hello Steve, Merry Christmas!
Merry Christmas, Al, and I just want to say with your puns, podcasting is one of the few dignified businesses left in the world. Alistair <laughs> Hughes, do you mind terribly if we keep it that way? But, but, but I thought it brightened the place up, Mr. Turek. <laughs> the chances of this podcast ever being dignified have long, long gone. <laughs> I had to go there. The line was great, and I thought, oh, I know exactly who to use this for and, and when. And it's only, it's only a matter of seconds until he starts going puntastic. It was perfect, Steve, but you should probably have used that about 19 episodes ago, even if it would have made any difference back then. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Al, and how, how's everything with you? Everything's really good, thanks, Steve. It's Christmas season in New Zealand, which means that it is hot. It's very early in the morning, so the sun's rising. It's another perfectly blue sky, and all's good with the world. How about you? You know, being that we live on opposite sides of the world, we get that different temperatures. And for me, it's the perfect time of the year. I like it when it's crisp, when it's in the 50s, 60s temperature-wise. and I don't know. To me, it's a magical, magical time of the year. It sounds like a much more appropriate time to be discussing Hammer, even though this is the first time that we have covered a Hammer film which isn't a horror film. And I'm really interested in what your first thoughts might be, Steve. Well, as, as listeners might know, this is, is an ongoing thing. This is my first time seeing Cash on Demand. <laughs> I haven't heard that before. <laughs> yes. Um, it's, it's, I know it's a rare thing, it, but I had heard about the film and I've heard other podcasts do reviews of the film. So I was familiar with it and I knew what to expect going in, which was a very well acted, not just with the top two players, but also the whole cast. Very well acted, very well staged, very well done movie. And with the Dickens type theme going on so well with Peter Cushing obviously playing the Scrooge character, Andre Morel playing the ghost, I look at a ghost of Christmas present type character. Mm. And of course, Pearson being an example of Bob Cratchit, but really you could say all the staff was Bob Cratchit, but him in particular was the embodiment of it. And so I thought the screenwriting was very well done. I know from reading it was based off the golden side which was i think a teleplay that went out a year prior to the production of this and i just think it was it's well crafted well done well executed filmed very nice it was very enjoyable to see in glorious black and white play, taking place two days prior to christmas uh it was just i don't know it's it's, it's getting me all excited because we're putting up this weekend the Christmas tree and the lights and everything else on it, the decorations. So it's a good movie to see to put you in that frame of mind. That's great to hear. And who would ever think that a Hammer film would put you into that sort of mood, Steve? I agree with pretty much everything you've said. I do have some reservations. But I will say that like our lead character in this film, my attitude may mellow and change by the end of this episode as the Christmas spirit works its magic. So, as others have said, this film is both utterly brilliant and utterly frustrating. The first two acts of Cash on Demand are an absolute masterclass of acting, uh, especially the searing, minimalist, virtuoso performances from two of Hammer's finest actors, tightly playing off one another to devastating effect. It's almost a breathtaking experience watching Cushing and Morell playing off each other. 
Instead of portentous musical cues, we have the merest narrowing of the eyes or tightening of lips. And in place of explosive effects, we have pauses and dialogue, which are as dread-inducing and menacing as a ticking bomb. Tension and drama is built up to an almost unbearable pitch and then somehow thrown away in a rushed and slightly confusing ending. I know it makes sense, and it does offer some degree of payoff for all that's gone before, but the problem is that I felt on my initial viewing at least that it falls short of delivering a worthy conclusion to such a riveting first two-thirds of the movie. So this is me being honest, Steve, and it doesn't sound very Christmassy of me to say that, but first two thirds of this film put it right up there in my estimation. And then I was just kind of feeling left a bit flat by the last part. How do you feel about that? Bah, humbug to what you said about the last (laughs) part. (laughs) A little bit, yeah. I can see where you're going because there were some things, I think it goes with expectations. I thought that maybe the staff of the bank was going to figure things out a little bit quicker Mm -hmm. and then be more proactive before he got a chance to escape. So I thought they were going to keep him from going. And to me, I'm glad that didn't happen because that would have been the predictable ending. Mm -hmm. That would have been the predictable thing. And I like it that he actually looks like he gets away with it. And he still has four dice under his power, under his control. Because it's it's just basically a, a, a huge mind game. There is there's only one plot hole to my in my mind, and that is yes, they said they were able to have somebody mimic or get a tape of the voices of his wife and son. Being that this takes place in the early sixties, that, that that to me is very hard to believe. And now if it was moved up to more modern day, you could see it more readily happening because of social media and people having videos of themselves. That was just something I I can let that pass. I mean, it could have ended this movie very sad. And I thought it was heading that downbeat ending. I'm thinking, man, The Lodge, that was not exactly (laughs) a happy ending. So I was happy that it resolved in a more positive way. Yes, yes, indeed. I guess maybe I'm just pre-programmed to having my Christmas movies being a little bit more predictable. And, And that's not a good thing. It's good to be challenged. And you're right about the voice mimicry. But I guess maybe with Fordyce being so rattled at the time and maybe... He never really listened to his wife and and child anyway, so he wasn't even that familiar with their voices. And also, maybe in 1961, when presumably this film is set, the quality of sound over telephone lines wasn't that great either. So, yeah, there's maybe a few suggestions, but I do agree with you, it was a little bit of a stretch. But while we've wandered on to Cushing, I'm just going to go on to my favourite scene, if that's okay with you. Go for it. And that is Fordyce's arrival. So let's just track what happens when Cushing enters the building. From fussily polishing the branch name plaque outside to dismissively handing his snowy shoe covers to Harvel, we learn that Fordyce is not a man who cares about festive goodwill. Publicly admonishing Miss Pringle, 
front of everybody. He then scrutinizes the first of various clocks. Inside his office, he hangs up his coat and folds his scarf over it with meticulous care. He minutely straightens his desk blotter pad and then momentarily loses his perpetual frown as he briefly picks up the picture of his family, hardening his expression again and summoning Pearson and Sanderson. He does not once speak to them as they carry out the funds to be balanced, but he watches after them coldly and quietly clenches his jaw. So in these few minutes, with an absolute minimum of dialogue, we have discovered that he is unbearably fastidious about his appearance and disdainful of anything that he perceives as frivolous. He's also obviously very contemptuous of his subordinates. We see that his family are the only thing that invokes something close to human warmth in him. And then finally, that he has a so far unspoken issue, Pearson and Sanderson, which he has just resolved to confront. A twitch of Cushing's lips, sharp glance, cold stare, or slight setting of his chin conveys volumes about Fordyce's character and relationship to his small world and the people unfortunate enough to be in it with him. And it reminds me of what our wonderful recent guest Judy Matheson said about the value of stillness in acting rather than pulling faces. And also reminds me why Cushing is still my favorite actor. I agree with you. I'm going to take the opening back to the opening of the movie mm. to add even more to it, where there, as the credits are going, you have the whole set that the movie is going to take place. So you have the layout of the whole interworkings of the bank, where, where this movie is going to take place. Yeah. And then they take the time to introduce the supporting cast mm. as they're all arriving at the bank. And you get a lot of character beats. For some of them, it's the only character beats they really get to develop their mannerisms and things like that. So you you feel like these people have worked together for a while. Mm. You feel like they are a working family, that they know each other, except for one, as you brought up when he is approaching, how he has that, that standoffishness. Few films take the time nowadays to establish all this, and I'm saying take the time, it's an 80-minute movie. It just, to me, goes to show that if you, you can use time very well. So, yeah, I agree with you. I think that the opening part, not just Cushing's, but the whole opening, is very important to the structure of the movie. That's excellent point, Steve. So I'm really keen to hear what your favorite scene might be. Well, interestingly enough, my favorite scene is also an arrival, mm -hmm. but not an arrival of Fordyce. Mm but an arrival of Hepburn, who our other main lead, Andrew Morrell, when he shows up, he parks his car. He finds out they can only stay over there for 20 minutes. He's seen as this, oh, I'm going to give to Santa. He's more warm and welcoming to people. He's a people person. He is. He goes in and he gets his way to Fordyce. Um, I dropping off the business card. But I love how quickly he takes control of the situation. Mm how he manipulates, how he's also conscious of time mm -hmm. and how he purposely draws attention to himself when he goes to the window and he looks at his watch. And you know, he's not doing it subtly. He's doing it so that Fordyce can see too that he's making this dramatic look of his watch, mm -hmm. which at the time we're thinking is the signal to a henchman. But as we all know now, it's all signals to Fordyce mm -hmm. and all the interplay of just setting everything up for the, the con. The, the mark, the grift, and 
it's just beautifully done. And that's when the phone call happens. And that's when the tape to message happens. And that's when he takes total control of the situation and the four dice. And you love it. His line, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit where it's like, most bank robbers just want to do it quickly. But I like to socialize and talk to the people. And he's just, he's just enjoying this whole situation, being a lifelong criminal. He just he enjoys playing with his prey. He's that cat that just doesn't want to eat the mouse. He likes to toy with the mouse. Hmm. Unless it's Tom and Jerry, these things don't go out too well for the mouse. It's an incredible performance by both men who are playing their respective roles to the absolute hilt. And it's a double act in the truest sense in that the two extremes that the two men are playing support and bolster each other. But what I'll also say about Andre Morel's performance is that although he can be almost oily in his smoothness and charm. He can also be surprisingly menacing by doing very, very little. Just some of the looks that he gives for dice or the silence that he lets draw. I've always enjoyed Andre Morel, but I've never quite seen him in this kind of role. It's extremely well acted by the two, but I also want to give credit to Richard Vernon as Pearson. Because Pearson has had a lot of things happen to him prior to Hepburn's arrival, where it establishes that he might get fired that day. You know, he might be dismissed right on the eve of Christmas by Fordyce because of what Fordyce is taking something and blowing it tremendously out of proportion. But it is technically an error. But how Pearson takes it, how he's surprised, how he's his reactions to what Peter Cushion is saying. Hmm. And I think this whole movie is really well done with the reactions shots of all the actors to different things. Yeah. I mean, as you brought up earlier with yours, Cushing going around and the, the rest of his, the bank staff seeing him, watching their reaction shots hmm. to him. All the cast, there's not a weak spot among them. Agreed, agreed. And we'll see Richard Vernon again in the Satanic Rites of Dracula eventually. And uh, a lot of us know and love him as Slarty Bartfast from the original Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy TV adaptation. So we've given our opinion, Steve. I'm going to resurrect my reviews section because it's really interesting. When I decided to sort of seek out some reviews for it, I found that more than any other film that we've covered, that appreciation and even love for it seems to have grown exponentially through the decades. Until now, in the 21st century, it seems to be a really beloved hidden gem. Apparently, U.S. distributors Columbia released Cash on Demand near Christmas time, as it always should have been, to modest success and good reviews, while back in Britain, Hammer themselves sat on it for a further two years before releasing it without any kind of fanfare on the bottom half of a double bill. So anyway, let's look at how Cash on Demand was received on either side of the Atlantic. In the New York Times on May the 17th, 1962, Bosley Crowther wrote, 
One of those prearranged robberies in which all the steps are plotted and planned, and all work out nicely and smoothly until that unexpected slip-up, is what you get in the neat, unpretentious little British film Cash on Demand. Engaging moments of suspense, tightly directed by Quentin Lawrence. Mild praise. Across the Pond, a year later on its British release, the Kinematograph Weekly enthused a neat and quite freshly conceived robbery thriller, sound acting by all, especially the two principals. Sixty years later, Steve, in the Irish Times, Ralph McLean rapturizes about Cash on Demand. And he says, based on a 1960 TV play, The Golden Side, this is a gloriously taut and trim thriller that tells its simple story with a small cast operating mostly in two basic sets. Within that austere setup, Lawrence delivers a fiendishly tight and suspenseful story that grips you ever closer as the tension levels rise with every passing minute. Morell and Cushing had worked together before, of course, but here the sparks truly fly between them on screen. Cash on Demand is a genuinely gripping and hugely enjoyable British thriller that makes for perfect Christmas viewing on a gloomy, snowbound afternoon. Now, that is what I call a good review. But that's not what I'm going to end with. I'm going to give the last word to the Tsar of Noir, Eddie Mueller. Back in 2019, Turner Classic Movies showed Cash on Demand as its selection for its weekly Noir Alley show. Host Eddie Mueller gives a delightful six-minute intro which is well worth finding on YouTube. And it gives you all the background information which we tend not to focus on in Hammerama. And he concludes with, even if it's not truly a film noir, it is, however, one of my new favourite Christmas movies. And I hope you dig it as much as I do. So, Steve, can you dig it? I can dig it because, you know, I'm a hefty <laughs> and just a square. So, yeah, and speaking of people that had to be a square, how could the U.S. edition be 80 minutes and the U.K. edition be 67 minutes? Wow. Who ever edited it down by 13 minutes? And this is according to Wikipedia. That person is a square <laughs> or whoever ordered it because that's, and I heard that they, they took away a lot of the stuff between Pearson and Fordyce and, and a lot of that, that the, the character stuff that I know I love, I think you love too. And for 13 minutes, I mean, it, it was already 80 minutes and they dropped it to 67. Probably to make it part of a double feature. They wanted to get it to the just over an hour mm. length. But to me, that, that's a very important part of the movie. But whoever ordered that, you, my friend, bah humbug. <laughs> that is awful. This film was obviously not well treated at all in its native land. But despite all that, just looking at some of those reviews, it has lasted, despite that abuse, to be really, really well appreciated these days. So, Steve, have you got anything else to add? Have you got some final thoughts? Do you have some merchandise? Do you have some underwear or socks that are maybe linked to this movie? Well, I do have some merchandise that, that is loosely based on this movie, mm -hmm. but is based on the show overall. It's a book. It, and basically, this book is everything you wanted to know about Hammer's horror films is contained in this incredible graphic guide, charts, templates, diagrams, and illustration 
take you through all the facts and figures from the relative heights of Frankenstein's monster to the actors to have played Dracula. No stone is left unturned in this compelling and fascinating look at the films which redefined horror for a generation. And, and Alistair, what book am I referring to that I recommend to everybody pick up for their friends and relatives for this holidays? Which book could this be that I'm compelling these audience members to buy? Steve, I have no idea, but it sounds terrible. No, actually, uh, those words sound very familiar. They are, of course, referring to my book, Infogothic, an unauthorized graphic guide to Hammer Horror. I guess you basically just said it all. Two years of my life drawing on every meager skill that I have to express my love of Hammer through the medium of infographics and illustration. Thank you for that, Steve. It'll always have a special place in my heart, and hopefully it has a special place on some people's bookshelves, maybe this Christmas. The book falls in the must-have section. If you're a Hammer fan, get the book. And if you need it, you can always know a way now how to get cash on demand. Cash on demand. So, Steve, I'm keen to steer you on to your final thoughts because anyone who has listened to the Classic Horrors Club podcast knows how emotional you can become if we talk too much about cutscenes from films. So, what are your final thoughts about Cash on Demand? I really, 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 as you everybody's heard already, enjoyed the movie. I enjoyed all three acts. I like how the the third act was not predictable. What listeners don't know is, is it's the only negative about this time of the year. It's like a negative positive. It's like a double-edged sword. Hallmark movies. <laughs> My wife loves Hallmark movies. I am forced to watch an inordinate amount of Hallmark movies more than the average person. And you talk about predictable plot. <laughs> Within five minutes, most the vast majority of Hallmark movies, I can tell you what is going to happen and almost when. Cash on demand because of that third act, which Alan was, as he said earlier, was a, it wasn't hitting him. I enjoyed probably even more because I've already seen 15 Christmas Hallmark movies, fresh Christmas Hallmark movies. At least they say they're fresh. To me, it's virtually the same thing with a different cast. So I enjoyed the uh, the switch, the change of pace that they had at the end. I, I enjoyed thinking that it was going to go one way and one another. I like that in a movie. I love it when I get to see great acting. Trust me, when the whole cast is acting as great as these people are in this movie, you enjoy that after seeing 15 Hallmark movies so far this year. <laughs> The movie itself should be aired on the Hallmark channel just to have a nice palate cleanser for people. The reason it'll never get aired there, there's no romance in this movie. But there is the Christmas spirit. There is the great acting. There is the wonderful cinematography. I just I just love seeing actors move around the sets and utilizing the whole thing. And you have two masters of it in Peter Cushing and Andre Morel. And how many noir-type movies, thriller-type movies are there that are also Christmas-themed? So if you love Christmas movies, definitely watch this one. If you're snowed in 
This is a perfect movie to watch with your Dracula socks, your hammer blankets, your infographic book nearby to refer to, a cozy fire. Now, if you want to go dour, watch last year's Christmas movie, The Lodge, <laughs> which is also excellently acted, very well done, totally different type of ending, leaving you with a totally different type of vibe. So these two are the yin and the yang of Christmas-type movies that you could encounter from Hammer. And I enjoy both of them. I enjoy, obviously, Cash on Demand more. I mean, come on, it's Peter Cushing and Andre Morel. You wish they did more films together. That would have been just a joy. I'm really looking forward to when we do, was it Hound of the Baskerville? All I can say is if you haven't seen this movie, see it now. Now. So you quite liked it then, Steve? There could be a change in my top 10. <laughs> wow. Okay. I can't disagree with anything you've said, Steve, except one thing. And that is, I really think in terms of Hallmark movies that you doth protesteth too much. I hear a very reliable rumor that you just cannot wait for the 14th variation on A Christmas Prince, which no doubt will be coming to your screen in the next few weeks. I know that you are you are wriggling with anticipation. I will say this, just real quick for you, Alistair. Tonight, my wife wants me to watch the Scottish Christmas Hallmark movie. <laughs> so for you, you will be watching, and it's a cast of Hallmark All-Stars in the Scottish Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> I wish I was at your place tonight, Steve, in front of your roaring <laughs> fireplace and watch a very Scottish Christmas with our Dracula socks on. <laughs> but anyway, just leaving that cozy scene for, for a moment, I'm going to get to my final thoughts. And I did suggest that like Fordyce's emotional journey, that perhaps my own attitude towards this film might shift and change. Now, I was thoroughly enjoying this film as an undiscovered gem when abruptly I found myself having to watch Cushing and Morrell pack every single one of those bags with cash without any cuts or dissolves. And despite myself, it started to lose me. The mundanity of it all, it was like watching two men folding washing. It seemed to gradually loosen some of the inexorably wound up tension, despite the two brilliant actors on screen. And then Fordyce's Christmas drink with a police sergeant. The scene does what it needs to, but it somehow feels overlong and it seems to ramble all over the place, leaking even more carefully contained suspense. And then finally, the denouement, the conclusion to everything. The first time I saw it, it just seemed a little bit unsatisfying and confusing. However, on rewatching again, I realized that the apparent flabbiness of those two scenes that I mentioned are necessary because, and here is my revelation, the events of this film more or less run in real time. Although we cut to different locations within the bank, time itself is not truncated at any point, but it flows continuously. 
And so the packing of cases with 93,000 pounds takes as long as it takes. And Fordyce's Christmas drink with the very charming sergeant allowed the inspector time to detain Gore Hepburn and escort him back to the bank. And as for the conclusion, repeated viewing seems to make it work better. As I said before, it all makes sense, but it is very underplayed and subtle. And what we actually see is not only a moment of redemption for Fordyce, but also possibly for Gore Hepburn as well. I mean, Cushing's character, it was always expected because, as we've said, we're watching a sort of Christmas Carol analogue. But that little moment of Hepburn actually apparently bailing Fordyce out was completely unexpected. So I'll revise my first thoughts. Cash on demand, like the Colonel's heist, is subtle and ingenious, with no detail left to chance. And... It's a Christmas film from Hammer. A Christmas ham Definitely not a turkey. Oh, that pun. I go back to my earlier statement in the episode. <laughs> <laughs> I've enjoyed this episode, but we have a listener who sent this feedback out from last month's episode. Oh, great. Greeting Steve and Alistair. I just finished listening to episode 18 on Taste the Blood of Dracula. I had just watched this film a couple of weeks ago, so it was fresh in my mind. I had been working my way through the Hammer Dracula series, which had started with a showing of 1958's Dracula at Monster Bash in October. I haven't seen Taste in a few years, and while it was better than I remembered, I still feel it's the weakest next to Scars of Dracula. Even the two modern films are better. I know there are a lot of people who are big Ralph Bates fans, but I'm not one of them. For Hammer to think he could replace Christopher Lee is incomprehensible to me. Failing to replace Lee with Bates, they then tried to replace Peter Cushing with him in the horror of Frankenstein. What nonsense. Taste showed just how much Hammer had just lost their way with the series. They have their American partner tell them they won't finance the film without Christopher Lee. Then they reduce him to a cameo. No offense, but I didn't come to see Ralph Bates, Anthony Corlone, or even John Carson. I came to see Lee. Great listening to you two again. I look forward to The Evil of Frankenstein and Steve's reaction to Hammer's version of a universal Frankenstein movie that never was. Best, Vince. Wow, that was better than half the material we come up with, Steve. Thank you so much, Vince, for those wonderful comments and really, really well-observed remarks about the films involved as well. Makes me feel all Christmassy, Steve. It does. Too. I enjoyed it, Vince. Thanks again. And yes, I'm looking forward to seeing Evil of Frankenstein also. I haven't seen it. Now that I know from your little hint, it must have some kind of universal type flavor to it, so to speak. Our mystery guest, and I am keeping him a mystery because we're still finalizing uh, details, but uh, a mystery guest might have a few things to say about uh, Evil of Frankenstein and the often quoted statement that it is basically 
a universal film made by Hammer. I'm sure he'll have some very interesting thoughts on that. But um, that's that's for the new year, Steve. 2024. It's exciting times. I just want to thank everybody again for listening in to Hammerama. And as always, if you want to leave us feedback, please send us an email like Vince did at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to share the episodes. And one of the things you can do so you don't miss any episodes of Hammerama or Diecast Movie Podcast is wherever you're getting your podcast, hit the subscribe button or the follow button. And that way you'll be notified when new episodes come out and it doesn't cost anything (laughs) which is the best part (laughs) steve it's been an absolute pleasure recording with you this year i've thoroughly enjoyed it all that remains for me to say is merry christmas steve all the very best to you and your family and merry christmas listeners see you next year Hammerama is a proud part of the Diecast Movie Podcast.